Live from Liverpool, this is The Morning Break with Tom Rogers on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio on this Remembrance Day. This morning, I've got Paul Reed joining me live. Uh, we are discussing our Remembrance Day stories, our Remembrance Day memories and everything in between. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you're going to enjoy this show. Live from Liverpool, this is The Morning Break with Tom Rogers on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag ttradio. Good morning, everybody. I hope you are well. Thank you very much for joining us again on Teachers Talk Radio for the morning break. Uh, we are live and also we have a special show this morning because we are focusing on Remembrance Day. A lot of people have been doing their Remembrance Day assemblies this week, have been doing their uh, Remembrance Day lessons, have been uh, doing all sorts. And I know that a lot of schools today will do the minute silence at 11 o'clock. Um, so with that in mind, uh, I thought it was apt that on the 11th uh, of November, we could do a show to commemorate Remembrance Day, really, and to think about uh, what it was, where it came from, uh, to think about some of the people involved in it. And I reached out uh, the other day to a friend of mine, uh, amazing military historian, Paul Reed. Uh, who has been very kind to me in the past and lots of work with uh, students of mine um, in, I think, two, three different schools now, whatever. Um, but basically just an incredibly amazing military historian and person. So it's it's a privilege to have Paul join me this morning to, uh, to go through this. Um, and obviously with his experience as well of living over in France, he can maybe share a unique perspective as well in terms of what it's like over there to be over there during Remembrance Day um, and, and so on. So uh, I'll bring Paul in now. Paul, good morning. How are you? Morning, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. How, how are you doing this morning? I'll tell you what, Paul, I I feel like I'm talking to an utter celebrity after watching, watching, <laughs> the, watching your performance with Pixie Lot last night. Now, fortunately, you weren't singing. But no, no. Great fortune that they are. Yeah, very fortunate. Yep, yep. 
<laughs> but I feel like I'm in the presence of greatness. So, yeah. Um, uh, no, not really. I, I'm actually joining you from a military cemetery. I'm sitting at uh, Rampart Cemetery at Ypres in Flanders in Belgium. And I'm looking oh at uh, uh, about 150 headstones uh, of great war soldiers who fell here during 1914, 18. And if there's any celebrities, uh, these are the these are the celebrities, these guys here who gave their all more than 100 years ago. That is so true. That is amazing that you're actually there and I can hear the birds tweeting. Yes, no chiff chaffs, but there's, uh, yeah, there's a few blackbirds up there above me. <laughs> yeah, amazing. And what a day to be there today. I, I would guess, is, is it busy? Are there a few people around or, or not? It, it's busy, but it's not as busy as it normally would be. I think the, you know, we still quite haven't got out of the COVID period yet. Uh, we have a couple of groups here, but we'd normally have a lot more than that. And there's a lot of individual visitors from Great Britain have come that I've seen, but nowhere near the same kind of numbers. I think people are remembering at home again, again this year, but hopefully next year that will change. Yeah, amazing. And how many, I mean, presumably you're doing the Battlefield Tour today. And the, the, I mean, it must be a hell of an experience for people to be on a battlefield tour during the remembrance week i'm guessing i'm, I'm guessing that must be an, a slightly different battlefield experience for them and for you absolutely i mean this time of year that the landscape is changing with the trees and the colors um and there are leaves bristling across the cemetery lawns and so on uh and there was a phrase during the great war home before the leaves fall that's what they were told in the autumn of 1914 as Europe went to war. And I th that always makes it quite a poignant, poignant thing, I think, at this time of year to, to come out like that. Yesterday we did the tour day. Today is the Remembrance Day. They're, they're in Epal Day. Uh, we're going to do a little trip out this afternoon to a few places. But we were at Tynecott yesterday, the largest British and Commonwealth cemetery from either World War anywhere in the world with only 12,000 burials. And there you, you kind of get an insight into the scale of loss in the First World War. Absolutely. And I have to say before we start <clears throat> that if you do have an opportunity to to uh, listen to Paul's podcast, it's The Old Frontline, an amazing podcast that, that you produce, um, which is, I guess, uh, a mixture really of history, your own experiences. Um, I, I, it's, it's almost like a mashup of those two. Um, mm. And, and a, a key part of that is kind of this idea of, of walking around the battlefields and, 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 uh, it's almost like you can close your eyes and imagine that you're in the battlefields. And that's kind of what I was envisaging for the show this morning, however difficult that is over, uh, over the airwaves. But, <laughs> but certainly one, one of the things that I, I want to start with really uh, with you as, as military historian is where did Remembrance Day originate from? Because we do have some international listeners. We have listeners from the U S and from, um, from, from India and so on. So where, where does, where does Remembrance Day originate from? Well, on this day, the 11th of November in 1918, the Great War came to an end symbolically at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And that was something that was done deliberately to symbolically mark the end of the war on the Western Front. So as the, Europe emerged from war and into peace, the nations that were victorious and had suffered so greatly decided that that would be the day that they would use to commemorate the dead from that war. And it's not something that's just British or from the Commonwealth. The French do it. The Belgians do it. Uh, so today, actually, is an, it's a national holiday in Belgium and France. And the roads are very quiet coming up here from Lille uh, to, uh, to Flanders. 
and people will be all over villages and towns across this region going to their local war memorial today to commemorate the dead from from their nation um, so it, throughout that interwar period into the period of the Second World War, it was the National Day of Remembrance in Britain. I mean, when my dad, who fought in the Second World War, was a was a boy, he remembered working in London in the 30s when the whole of London would stop at 11 o'clock. Uh, the trams would stop, the underground would stop, everybody would stop what they were doing in the shops and the streets, and they would pause to remember. But then, of course, another World War comes along, and, mm. and after that, a decision was made to commemorate both world wars on remembrance sunday the nearest sunday to the 11th of november got you now obviously on remembrance day we we think about you know we we uh, think about the memories of people who've, who've died in conflict and and also we honor we honor their memories but what i mean what i the reason i invited you on to the to the show today really is to share some uh individual people memories perhaps uh, individuals that you think about on Remembrance Day. And we can maybe go through some of those in the show this morning. And I'm going to chip in with my take on this as well. Um, But I thought I'd ask you to start with, you know, um, and obviously I think I mentioned like four or five when when we were talking about it, but um, maybe just start with one to begin with in terms of who would be the first person you think about on Remembrance Day? Well, that's an easy one. That that would be my dad. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. He was a veteran of the Second World War. And growing up, um, you know, I grew up with a veteran in my household, my own dad, who, who spoke about the war in that typical sort of jokey, uh, roundabout sort of way that many veterans do to their own family. But as he got older, he, he delved deeper into the darker side of his war. And um, I take groups regularly to the Italian battlefields of the Second World War where he fought. Uh, and I tried so often to get him to come back with me, but he wouldn't because there's a row of graves at Anzio War Cemetery of men from his artillery unit who were in observation posts that uh, the two teams of them manned, and they did regular stints in and out of that. He did his stint. They were relieved by the next team coming in, and when that team took over, it got hit by a barrage, and they were all killed, and they're all buried in one row in that cemetery. So through circumstance, through time and place and everything else it could have been very different there could have been a bombardier reed buried there and i wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now tom yeah that's that's and i think there's just so many stories like that you know and and for me one of them for me is is my my granddad on my mum's side uh similarly uh, to, to your dad in the sense that um he was a uh, uh, a gunner in a, in a blenny second world war and um, they uh, did a raid over Germany, a night raid, and they uh, flew back from this raid. This was in, I think, February 41, near the beginning of the war. And um, unfortunately, they were followed back all the way by a lone pilot. Um, I actually found his name, which was pretty remarkable. Wow. He was quite a famous yeah. German German pilot. He died later on in the war. Um, but this guy was just flying a single plane, followed them all the way back from Wilhelmshaven, in Germany and to, to kind of Nor- uh, well Bodney, which is I guess near Norwich uh, kind of area, and um, and when they came into land, um, he attacked the plane, and everybody in the plane apart from my granddad was killed. Wow! Uh, because he was in the turret, and he obviously had the the protection of the turret, 
um, and uh, the others didn't. And yeah. the machine gun bullets just just got everybody basically, apart from him. Uh, and that was the end of his war then, because he was he was badly injured from that point, and um, and it took him a long time to recover. He'd broken his back in various places and all this Gosh. kind of stuff. So that is. What one? I don't. I don't actually think about him. I think about the pilot. It was a guy called Chataway, because um, I did some research on this a few years ago, and I found out the names of the uh, the other people in the plane. And it, it does it. It does personalize it, doesn't it? When you've got that, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. I mean, so do you I... think that Remembrance Day will become less meaningful, if you like, for the current generations? I mean, how do you see it going? Do you think it's going to continue? Do you think it's going to evolve? I mean, I, I mean, they're they're beginning to get to a point where they're they're very distant from the from the witnesses of these wars. The, the last great war veteran died more than a dozen years ago, and then we're getting towards the well, we're well past the eleventh hour of the World War Two generation now. But I mean, in my experience, uh, when student groups come here to the battlefields and they visit cemeteries like the Rampart Cemetery that I'm sitting in now. Uh, they're still inspired by these visits, inspired by the names they see on the headstones to find out more and discover more about these lives, who these men were, what the sacrifice was, how it affected their family. Just like I was inspired as a student nearly 40 years ago when I, I came to these cemeteries, including this one, with my uh, with my school. So I think it, it's it's almost an eternal story, the Great War in particular, uh, that you can connect to these ordinary men in these extraordinary circumstances, mm. um, and it still has a great impact on people. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mean, there are personal kind of they're, they're the first people we might think about on Remembrance Day. But I was going to ask you maybe to share some people that maybe aren't direct relations of yours, or or, or are people that you've learned about over the years who who you kind of think about on remembrance there i was wondering whether you could maybe start with one of those sure well i mean i, I was lucky to interview a lot of first world war veterans in the the 1980s and 90s and this every time i come out to these battlefields i, I always think back to them and often talk about some of their stories uh, and there was an amazing guy called george butler who was a working class lad from manchester and his mother died and he didn't get on with his stepmother and he left the family house and lived on the streets of Manchester as a as a beggar, really, for, for almost a year. Uh, and then he joined the regular army as a 12-year-old boy soldier, which was quite a legitimate thing to do before the war. Yeah. Because that was the school leaving age. And uh, he joined up, became a boy soldier, did four years of training. Uh, he was 16 when the war broke out. And his battalion, the Lancashire Fusiliers, marched off to France. He didn't go with it because he was underage still. His commanding officer left him behind, which did him a favour because the battalion was wiped out a couple of times in the first few months of the war. And then he finally went across to the Western Front in 1915 and he served continuously for over three years in the trenches until he was very badly wounded in April 1918. And he went over the top again and again and again. And by some miracle, he survived when so many didn't. And uh, and he had almost total recall of some of these things. He, he kept it bottled up for so many years. And this stranger came along who could ask the right kind of questions. And um, and he opened up with it. And, and it was just the most extraordinary thing. And, and I learned so much about the personal experience of war through him uh, and life in the trenches and the meaning of their comradeship and what it meant to them. And, and it's, it's those sort of things and those sort of people that I think of when I when I come here, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's interesting you say that because 
at the start of, of World War, you know, it's obviously Remembrance Day today. And I was doing an assembly with my students uh, with year nine yesterday, and I'm doing the other one with year 11 tomorrow. Um, and one thing I said to them was that, you know, a lot of the soldiers at the start of World War One were not much older than them. You know, yep. I think, I don't know, I mean, you'll know better than me, but what were the kind of average ages of soldiers who were uh, joining up for World War One and, and fighting in World War One? Well, at the beginning of the war, you had to be a minimum of 18 to enlist. So um, uh, the thing, the difference was, you know, even young people today carry a lot of bits of identity with them to prove who they are, even if it's just a bank card. And um, then they didn't have that. Uh, and if you looked the part you were in, so one of the vets I knew, who was Scottish, he went into a recruiting office in Edinburgh uh, and he was 16 years old and he marched in and the recruiting sergeant said to him, how old are you, Sonny? And he said, 16, sir, because uh, his mother has always told him to tell the truth. And he <laughs> said, uh, and he looked at him, he said, well, go outside and march around the block and come back in when you're 18. So as long as you said you were 18 and you looked 18, you were in. Uh, and a lot of thousands, I mean, Richard Van Emden's got a new edition of his Teenage Tommy's book that's just come out. It's, it's hundreds of thousands of these young lads who joined up underage in 1914 and 1915, the youngest of which who served overseas was only 12. So it, it, they're staggeringly young, and they are very close to the age of your students. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's something I think a lot of the students can't conceptualise or they don't know is is how young a lot of these soldiers were. They, they, they see it as like a modern war. They... You know, I don't think they get the concept of people at the age of 13, 14, 15 wanting to go into this kind of environment. I mean, obviously, it's easy in hindsight because they now know the conditions in the trenches and they know, you know, what it was like and so on. I suppose at the time, you know, a lot of these kids thought it was going to be like, well, I mean, how did they imagine it? What did well, they I think it was going to be like? I think that many of them, not just the kids, but the adults too, the older men, thought, saw it as a great adventure. This was a, a moment in their life where events were greater than them and they were about to take part in it and they wanted to take part in it. And I think that the difference is that, you know, your students of that age now, they are still children in, in so many ways. Mm. But over a century ago, at the age of 12, you weren't really considered either by yourself or your family as a child anymore because you had the ability to earn money. And in a working-class family, mm -hmm. that was really important. And, you know, we watched Downton Abbey, and it's a great series. You know, it, it casts this golden light over the Edwardian age. But the reality of that period is that life for mm -hmm. ordinary people was very, very tough. And even a 12-year-old, once he'd gone to work in a colliery or a factory, you know, or whatever it was, or joined the regular army, would no longer have considered himself a child. He would have considered himself a man. Uh, so they probably didn't even consider that when they went to enlist. They knew that they were not meant to be doing it, but they wanted to be part of it. And um, they wanted to be in that moment, that moment that was the Great War. Uh, and they flocked in their thousands, as we now know, to, to join. Yeah, absolutely. And in the assembly that I did yesterday, and if anyone wants this assembly, it's on my uh, TES resources page, free download of it, if you're doing an assembly either today or tomorrow or whenever. Um, but basically, on the first few slides, um, we got I got like the, um, the queues of people outside the Tower of London, actually, on the, you know, on the kind of lawn there where the poppy you know the ceramic poppy memorial has been it was in that same place and there were hundreds yeah. of hundreds of them there hundreds thousands 
mm. queuing up, queuing up, you know, in the first week of the war to to kind of get involved. And also, I showed them the uh, the picture of Buckingham Palace with them all throwing the hats up in the air, happy, delighted, uh, loving, loving it. Uh, and the king had come out on the balcony, hadn't he, to, to say whatever. Right. He, I don't know what he said, but he came out, didn't he? And they were all there. Um, what when they first got out there? What was their reaction? I mean, once we've mentioned what their thoughts were prior because they didn't have a clue and they thought it would be a big adventure. What was their reaction when they got to the front line? Well, I mean, you know, you can do any amount of training and, and training back then was a lot more rudimentary than it is in a modern army today. Uh, the army tries to prepare its soldiers today for combat and the realities. They do actually do a program called the Realities of War in which young soldiers get to learn about the fact that there are casualties and, and you can be one of them. So the army tries to prepare them for that situation. Then there was none of that. I mean, they were given rudimentary basic training, marching. It was a lot of physical training. So marching, physical drill. Uh, they'd do things like bayonet practice, learn how to fire a rifle, uh, learn how to recognize and salute an officer and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it did not prepare them for the realities of what they were going to go into. Nothing could really. Because, I mean, in 1914, everyone was prepared for war just not that war. Uh, and, and when that war became this trench war, this dark world of the Western Front, and young men like that went into it, they saw unspeakable horrors that forever changed them. Uh, and it's, you know, it's it, one of the common things when you bring groups to places like this is, you know, why didn't they all just walk away from it? But there was this strong sense of duty then uh, that is, you know, perhaps not un completely understood. These men felt a duty not only to king, country and empire, but to themselves, their family. And once they were in the, the army, their comrades, that you just did not let someone down. They relied on you. The man on your right and your left relied on you and you would not uh, shirk on that duty ever. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously they got there and there was, I mean, if we imagine some of the pictures from Passchendaele and all these other places in terms of the, the mud and the, the dead animals and, you know, all the rest of it that they, that they got there and they saw and they experienced and they witnessed. And then obviously they've got to you know, go on the attack. They've got to go over the top. They've got to do all the, all these things that we, you know, are well documented. Um, yep. And one of the ones that I, uh, was was talking about to my students was Billy McFadden and the Victoria Cross that he won and that's yep. one where I always I think with the students they imagine war to be a little bit like a game of Call of Duty sometimes yes yeah I'm sure yeah yeah and they don't get that there was a lot of boredom and in between the boredom was a lot of pain and horrible things happening uh, I don't think they get that and un understandably because why would they get it, right? Um, yeah. But there is that, I think, because of computer games and because of, uh, I guess, our, our, to an extent, our society and, and just the way, you know, things are presented um, to them. I guess the concepts of war are very different. So w when I discussed it with them yesterday, you know, one of the ones I talked about was Billy McFadden, who was not somebody who charged at the enemy with a gun and threw grenades and all that kind of stuff, but somebody who... Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if you, you could tell everybody if you if you know the story, Paul. Yeah, well, he he, he, sacri he sacrificed his own life to save his comrades. So they were carrying equipment and ammunition and, and bombs, hand grenades, up towards the frontline area to make the attack on the Somme on the 1st of July 1916 from Thietval Wood. 
uh, as part of the Ulster division. He was in the Royal Irish Rifles. And uh, a box of grenades were dropped. The pins came out of the grenades. And um, he threw himself on these grenades to absorb the, the blast to, to, to save the men around him in the close confines of that trench. Um, so he was there, probably one of their very first casualties on that day before they'd even gone over the top, um, sacrificing his life to save others. Yeah, and I always say, you know, he had three seconds to decide what to do. And, you know, to jump on top of the the grenade within those three seconds. I, I, I think the king said, I could be wrong on this, but I think the king said after the war it was the bravest, something like it was the bravest action of the war. Um, the yep. king said that afterwards. And there's something, yeah, there's something remarkable about 21, 20, 21 year old who who does that um, and chooses to do that within those three seconds. I, I find that, and the, and the kids are always, always find that re- one remarkable. They always, you know, looking at their faces, they're always going, oh God, I can't get my head around that one. Um, no, absolutely. And I, I think it goes back to what we were saying about the sense of duty. But I think one of the things that, you know, that a lot of youngs or anyone going to the trenches would have uh, f- struggled with was the randomness of death the way that death, particularly in quiet periods, like you say, that boredom is not a word that we would uh, associate with the First World War, but there were Mm. static parts of the front when nothing happened for very, very long periods. In some cases, years. So there was two years of static warfare here at Ypres from mid-1915 to to mid-1917, and men could just be killed standing in a trench, nothing going on, no battle, no attack, nothing. And a shell would come over and they'd be killed instantly. So you know, it was the randomness of it. And I, I remember one of the veterans, Harry, uh, they had a draft of, of young uh, teenage Tommies come up to join their battalion, and they'd just got into the trenches. And these lads came along, and they had their steel helmets on. And steel helmets have a leather chin strap um, that on parade you actually do have around your chin, but you don't wear it under your chin in the trenches. And these guys had only just arrived. They didn't know this. And before them as experienced soldiers had a chance to explain that to these young uh, arrivals. Uh, Shells came down in the trench and buried one of them alive in the side of the trench. The trench collapsed and he was buried alive and his legs were sticking out the side of the trench, still kicking, so they knew he was alive. So they were scratching away at the, the, the loose earth, trying to loosen it up a bit more and get him out. And they did that, grabbed hold of his ankles and pulled him out. Now in pulling him out, the earth pushed against the rim of his steel helmet. And the helmet liner was attached to the chin strap, and the chin strap was around his chin. And in doing that, it pulled against his chin, pulled against his head, and broke his neck, killed him. And oh my God. so that chin strap was normally worn loose at the back of the head or on uh, the rim of the helmet. Now, he'd only done his basic training. He had no idea about this. It's his first day in the trench, his first hour in the trench, and he's dead. And that was the randomness of death on the Western Front. Yeah, I know. I know one of the more familiar ones is this idea of when they first got there and they went into the front line, and they were. Quite, I know you've talked about this on your podcast, but the kind of unpreparedness of soldiers, you know, getting shot by snipers and so on, when they didn't have a clue what, no, what to expect. Yeah, um, I mean, there was a veteran called Frank Bastable whose best mate was killed like that. They just got into the trenches on the Somme nearly a year before the battle when it was a quiet sector. And his mate, Bill Beckington, uh, had never seen a German. And there they were fighting the German army. So he said to Frank, he said, I'm going to see one of these Germans. He says, what do you mean? And he stood on the fire step, put his head over the parapet to look towards the German trenches and ping, bullet shot him straight through the head, killed him instantly. 
Yeah. And, you know, we, but again, you know, it's hard to kind of conceptualize that. And one of the other stories and one of the ones that I talked about quite a lot this week was Wilfred Owen. And um, I guess, you know, I could have talked about the other war poets as well, but I wondered whether, you know, at the time, you know, think about war poetry. Um, I guess that was kind of like their Twitter, wasn't it? A little bit. Yeah, their, yeah. It was, there wasn't any other medium, was there really, to... No, to try and to, express something, to, to verbalise some of it. No, you're right. And I think with Owen, I mean, there were a lot of people writing poetry in the war, you know, quite basic poetry. There are, there are lots of autograph books that soldiers had, and you see them writing some poems and so on in, in, in those. That's not uncommon. Uh, the kind of literature, uh, poetry that people like Owen produce is on a different level, of course. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's most remarkable about Owen is that he could so easily have, have been completely unknown if it wasn't for that moment when he met Siegfried Sassoon at Craig Lockhart in 1917. You know, a, a published poet, a great man, already well known, um, uh, who saw something in Owen and saw something in what he was writing and, and enabled eventually that poetry really to to be published but not in Owen's lifetime sadly yeah absolutely and you know I, one of the ones that I showed them was the and I I'll be honest I didn't know about this until I saw it recently is the sculpture of Wilfred Owen in mm. uh, in Birkenhead you know a really remarkable uh, sculpture in in Hamilton Square in Birkenhead of Owen and that's something that again that I show the students because obviously I teach near Liverpool so being able to show them that from a local perspective was was really good, and also Shivas Park, uh, which is right in the middle of Liverpool, mm. um, which is named after Noel Shivas. Um, yeah, we went to see his grave yesterday. Actually, we were at Shivas's grave at Brenton wow. yesterday. Yep. yep. Well, I was going to ask you about him, and you can tell people about Noel Shivas because I think his story is particularly uh, particularly interesting. It is. I mean, he was the son of the Bishop of Liverpool. Um, there were five children. He had an elder brother who was killed in 1917, whose name is on the Menin Gate. His twin brother, Christopher, was an army chaplain. And there were twin sisters as well. And I, I met those twin sisters in the 80s. They came to the wow. War Museum uh, to donate the family archive to them. It was quite incredible. Oh they, were, they were VADs. They were part of the voluntary aid detachment during the First World War. And uh, Shoas uh, was a medical student and then, then qualified as a doctor. He became the med pre-war medical officer of the Liverpool Scottish, which was a, a local territorial battalion in, in Liverpool. And they went to war quite early on in the autumn of 1914, uh, one of the first territorial battalions to come across to the Western Front. And uh, he got the military cross as their medical officer in the fighting here in around Ypres in 1915 at a place called the Bellawada Ridge near Hoog. And as a medical officer, his job was... He wasn't a combatant. Uh, he had a team of stretcher bearers and they would go out and pick up the wounded from their battalion and take them back to an aid post for some rudimentary basic uh, medical treatment, clean a wound, dress a wound, uh, assess the casualty and then send them on to the next phase, which was a field ambulance, a dressing station uh, slightly away from the battlefield area. And but that meant he was darting around on a battlefield with the bullets and the shells flying in every direction, uh, going out there to, to rescue wounded soldiers. So he got decorated for that with a military cross. And then a year later on the Somme in 1916, he got the Victoria Cross. And at one point during that action, he was only 20 yards from the German trenches, uh, literally in broad daylight, going out there to, to pick up the wounded and bring them back. And then he was offered, following the award of the Victoria Cross, he was offered a safe job at a casualty clearing station or 
a base hospital. But he felt such a strong connection to his battalion and the men from Liverpool and his stretcher bearers that he wouldn't leave them. So he stayed with the battalion. And a year later, in the opening stage of the Battle of Passchendaele, he, he went over with his stretcher bearers once more. And that day it began to rain and it didn't stop raining for much of the rest of the Third Battle of Ypres. Um, we, you know, we associate yeah. the weather, terrible weather conditions with that battle. And what Shavas knew was that there were wounded soldiers out there and that wounded men always sought cover. So they'd be crawling into shell holes, which were now filling up with water. And if he didn't go and recover these men, they'd drown because they'd be incapacitated by their wounds and they wouldn't be able to get away from it. It would be a terrible, terrible end for these men. So he tirelessly went out to re- try and recover these wounded and he chanced his luck once too often and he was hit by a shell blast that would kill him. He died of wounds the same evening in a casualty clearing station behind the lines. And he was then awarded a posthumous bar to his Victoria Cross, the only man in the war to get a VC and bar, uh, and only one of three men to achieve that distinction in the history of the award. Yeah, remarkable. And, you know, I, 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 again, uh, the, a lot of the, the kids, and, and not just the kids, the adults actually, didn't know that Shivas Park was named after Noel Shivas. So I think there's some, mm. there's definitely, you know, some some really good kind of work to do around uh, local history and, you know, keeping the kind of locality of these people, keeping their memories alive in, in the localities and so on. And I think things like the memorial for Wilfred Owen, things like Shabbat Park, just little things can make a real difference to to that. Um, I think that's that's really good. Uh, Flix has texted in. I am in South Africa. Well, good morning, uh, Flix Fluency. We are talking about Remembrance Day this morning, so you are welcome and thank you for joining us live this morning. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And one of the one of the other things that I find to be remarkable as well and and this is a story that i told the students yesterday was walter tull uh the yeah and you know again i'll be honest with you didn't know about walter tull up until about a year ago i didn't know anything about him um and i'm a history teacher so you know that's terrible really but didn't know didn't know um can you tell us about him paul because i think his story is a, a a remarkable remembrance day story well, he, he was one of many uh, members of the British black community before the First World War. Um, there's there's, an off, there's a, a much-held belief that particularly people from an, an African-Caribbean background didn't come to Britain until the Windrush period after the Second World War. Mm. But actually, there was a big black British community in places like Liverpool, for example, um, because of the docks and the influx of people from all over the world. You see these kind of communities begin there, London, uh, Newcastle, um, Cardiff, and all sorts of places like this. Uh, so there was a big community. And in some cases, that went back to Tudor times. So we're, we're talking about a longevity of a black community in Britain that I think a lot of people are not, not really aware of. And uh, Tull uh, was, a, was not uh, a soldier, a professional soldier, but he was a professional footballer. That's what he did before the war. And he was one of the very first black professional footballers that played for English teams before the Great War. And when the, the Great War came along, they formed a football battalion of the Middlesex Regiment made up of these professional and amateur footballers. And he joined that as a sergeant. He was shell-shocked on the Somme in 1916 in the fighting near Delville Wood. And when he recovered from that, he put in for a commission. Now, the interesting thing about that is he became one of the first. He's, he's often considered that he is the first, but he is one of the first because there are 
some earlier uh, black British soldiers who were commissioned into the army. But the interesting thing about Tull is that he became an officer in a period when the army changed. Prior to 1917, one of the first questions they asked you when you applied for a commission to become an officer was not what is your experience of, uh, and, and your ability to lead men in battle, but uh, what school did you go to? And mm. they kind of thought that was the same question, to be honest. Uh, yeah. And by that, they meant that they weren't asking if you went to Bognor Regis Baptist School. Um, they were asking if you went to Winchester, Eton, Harrow, uh, and all these other kind of public schools. It's so a kind of hangover from the, well, from the intense class system, wasn't it? I suppose, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But by 1917, the men who came from those sort of backgrounds had already joined the army, had been killed on, on, on the battlefields. Um, so the army needed to broaden its spectrum. And anybody, they changed the, the Army Act effectively, and anybody could apply for a commission. And Tal was one of those men. Uh, but prior to that, he wouldn't have got a commission. Um, so a man from you know a, a fairly middle-class background with, with no kind of private education was able to uh, step forward and become an officer. And more significant than that, that he was from Britain's black community. So that was a significant moment. Um, he then went off to return to his regiment, the Middlesex Regiment. He served in Italy with them. Uh, British Army went to help the Italians in the late autumn of 1917. They were our ally and they were attacked by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he served there for a while. He was reputedly recommended for the Military Cross for his bravery there, but that was never awarded. Uh, so many medals weren't. And I don't think there was any kind of racism necessarily there. I mm. think it was the circumstances of it because you needed to have witnesses for awards to be yeah. uh, to be confirmed but then he returned to france with his battalion and they took part in the fighting on the somme when the germans broke through in march 1918 and he was killed and his body was never found his name is on the arras memorial to the missing and i took a group um the week before last and we we went to see tull's name on the memorial there and, and tell his story so the important thing about him is, you know, it's the sport element that, you know, many young people are into football and can see that. And, and it's the importance as well of this is a voice, this is a face from a community that many people don't even know existed at the time of the First World War, but they did their bit. And, and those that have seen 1917, the movie, uh, it was criticised at the time for the number of black faces that were in it. But that represents what the army was like. You know, it, it's an extreme representation of it, but it, it looks mm. into the fact that not every soldier was white. And that is something that we really need to understand and remember. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I, I was going to kind of finish off really by asking you about where you are now. And perhaps there's some stories or some things that you can tell us about, you know, whether it be the cemetery that you're sat in right now or maybe the surrounding area, you know, the hills, the fields, whatever. Is there anything you can tell us about where you are now uh, in terms of Remembrance Day or in terms of, you know, the things that we're talking about here? Well, uh, the Rampart Cemetery is so cool because it sits on uh, some 18th century Valban-designed ramparts that were part of the old fortifications of Ypres. These were redundant by the First World War, but there were uh, casemates and chambers and tunnels within them that were utilised, and there was a dressing station near here. And that's how this particular cemetery began, because men died of their wounds and were buried here. But then units began to bury men when they came back from the line. They'd lost uh, a popular officer or a well-known soldier in the battalion, and rather than bury him nearer to the battlefield, they'd bring him back here. And it sits 
overlooking a moat and I'm looking at the moat now there's the autumn colors of the trees in front of me reflected in the water of the moat and beyond that is a road bridge that takes you out onto the battlefields and all of the headstones face the old front line where the battlefields were it's quite a symbolic cemetery in, in that respect and it's a quiet corner of a busy city where there's this tiny English garden of remembrance and 150 200 headstones in here so quite a small battlefield cemetery most of them identified there are men from britain there are men from canada there are maoris from new zealand buried in here it's quite a big cross-section of the sort of army that marched to war across these battlefields in the great war and it's one of my favorite places to come to when i come here for the 11th of november because it is a quiet place to come and reflect and remember and it's one of the very first cemeteries that i visited when I came to the battlefield with my school nearly 40 years ago. Wow. So, what I mean, what's your plan for today then? Are you taking this group round, presumably, round, round there? Or... I, I will be, yeah. So, they're, they're all attending the main ceremony at the Menin Gate this morning. Uh, we're meeting up later on after lunch, and we're going to go out onto the battlefields to see a few more places. I'm hoping to do a little bit of a battlefield walk with them, actually on the ground where Chavas uh, was awarded his military cross in 1915. The Memorial to Liverpool Scottish is up there, so we're going to have a look at that ground and tie that into our visit to his grave that we made yesterday. Uh, it's always quite nice to do that, not just to stand in a cemetery and look at a headstone, but to show them a bit of ground connected with the story of, of that soldier. Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time out to uh, to call in today. It's been, uh, it's been amazing to chat to you again and... Uh, you take care. Have a good time. Jealous that I'm not out there today. Yeah. It would have been would have been amazing. So, um, well, hopefully we'll see you on the old front line one of these days, Tom. You, you never know. I hope so. I hope so. Cool. Uh, you take care, Paul. Have a good day, and uh, thanks very much Thank indeed. My pleasure, Tom. Bye bye. See you later. That was uh, military historian and creator of the Old Front Line podcast, Paul Reed, joining us live from France or Belgium. I think he was in France. Anyway. Um, amazing to hear somebody actually there on Remembrance Day. That's really amazing. Um, and what we're going to do, what we're going to do for the rest of the show, I, I've got the news in a second, and uh, we're going to kind of touch on some of the things in the news um, after the news. Um, but before we go to the news, um, it's interesting what we've said there about Remembrance Day in terms of the legacy for teachers and how teachers are going to teach this moving forward, because as we mentioned, a lot of our students, a lot of the students we're teaching, they don't have that. I mean, okay, you know, you imagine a year, I don't know, year seven, year eight, year six, you know, 10 years old, nine years old, whatever. It's going to be very difficult for them to have that connection. I mean, I've had my nan and I'm sure people listening to this will will have a you know that family connection, but the children now don't aren't necessarily going to have that close connection so it is going to be interesting to see how remembrance day is going to evolve how it's going to develop how we're going to keep it going uh, what we're going to do to keep it going i mean obviously you know we, it's going to carry on it's just in terms of how it maintains i guess what what it has up to this point so that's an interesting question i don't know the answer to that if you have the answer text in or tweet us at tt radio 2021 follow us on twitter follow us on instagram Make sure you get involved and uh, and tell us your thoughts on today's show. Tell us what you're doing for Remembrance Day in your school um, and make sure you you drop us a line later if you're listening back to this as a podcast. Well, first of all, thank you very much. 
but secondly, um, you know, what are you doing? Do get in touch with us. Tell us what you did if you're listening to this retrospectively for Remembrance Day. I'm going to go to the news now and I'll be back in a couple of minutes. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Megan Goods. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. A worrying trend on social media app TikTok has seen teachers across the country targeted in videos. The content contains unfounded allegations of sexual misconduct and uses offensive insults and homophobic slurs. The social media company has been written to by the Association of School and College Leaders, who demand TikTok take immediate steps to remove the content. Jeff Barton, the General Secretary of the ASCL, has spoken out, saying he is deeply concerned that a number of offensive and defamatory videos have been posted on the TikTok platform targeting members of school staff. Although these posts appear to be in clear contravention of TikTok's community guidelines, it appears that, in the majority of cases, no action has been taken by TikTok to remove them after a complaint has been made. The union has written to TikTok demanding it take immediate steps to prevent posts of this nature appearing on the platform. Barton continued, saying material of this nature is deeply upsetting for the school and college staff who were targeted, and we strongly urge those responsible for this material to desist immediately. School and college staff have worked tirelessly and in extremely difficult circumstances throughout the course of the pandemic. Imagine how they feel to be the subject of spiteful and nasty videos on a social media platform. Those responsible should show more respect, and TikTok should show more care. The videos that feature pictures of teachers, videos from school websites or YouTube channels, and photoshopped images have been viewed millions of times. TikTok has responded with a statement, claiming, Our community guidelines make clear that we do not tolerate content that contains bullying or harassment, statements targeting an individual or hateful speech or behaviour, and we remove content that violates these guidelines. That was your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Welcome back to the morning break on Teachers Talk Radio. That is obviously the breaking news story in the last couple of days. Uh, the TikTok, uh, what should we say? The TikTok scandal, I would call it, because currently uh, there are hundreds of teachers being targeted across the UK uh, on the platform 
videos with homophobic, racist, uh, misogynistic um, stuff are being uh, shared at will on the platform. Uh, I know Jeff Barton has got involved in this and he's trying his best to put pressure on TikTok to do something about it. I put a tweet out yesterday asking teachers to respond if they had had experience of this in their school and hundreds have replied saying yes. Um, And uh, some of those commented have actually had the personal experience of it. So this is real. This is very real. And TikTok so far have said it. You heard it. You heard the quote in the news saying, we take it seriously. We remove content. That's a lie. That's just a lie, you know, because we can clearly see that people are reporting these things and they are not taking the content down um, at the moment. So it's it's important that government and, and other agencies put as much pressure on, on TikTok to comply with their own uh, standards. So it's not just laws, and it's their own standards that they're breaking, it's their own written constitution that they are uh, that they are currently breaking in. And what's interesting, I know Nathan uh, Nathan Ginn on his show yesterday made the comment that, well, if it was streaming football matches, then TikTok would have been quick to take that down. He's absolutely right. If this was relating to a celebrity who threatened legal action, then I'm absolutely certain that the content would have been removed from the site already. But because this is just teachers, just teachers, you know, just, just ordinary teachers uh, doing their jobs, there is this kind of um, reticence to remove the content uh, and to to actually take it seriously and, and get it done, and you know that's terrible. Uh, it is absolutely appalling. So um, so I call on TikTok and Teachers Talk Radio calls on TikTok to uh, take some action on this, do something about it, protect educators across the UK and across the world because this isn't just the UK. This is going to be affecting teachers all over the shop. So. Very important for for TikTok to act on that. I think uh, Jeff Barton and and other union leaders are are trying their best. I think the government are starting to get involved and get onto this and realise that it's something that that needs to be sorted out. I know the government have been in touch with TikTok and they're trying to do something about it, but they shouldn't have to. TikTok should be doing it now. They shouldn't need union leaders and government officials and so on to to get involved. Uh, So... That was the news. Uh, we're going to keep you updated on that on Teachers Talk Radio. We're going to have more updates on that as the, the weeks progress moving forward to see what the outcomes of this are because I, I can rest assured this is only the beginning on this. Uh, I think that uh, it's only gonna, the story is only going to roll on and, uh, and get bigger. And, uh, yeah, I think that there's going to be uh, repercussions one way or the other in terms of what's going to happen. So certainly... Uh, we will keep you updated. We will let you know how things uh, progress and, and go, and, and hopefully things will sort themselves out, uh, I, I hope. But, you know, with, the, with these big companies, you just never know, do you? You don't know what's going to happen. Anyway, uh, this was the uh, morning break remembrance special. And obviously earlier on in the in the program, I discussed or we discussed, myself and Paul Reed, uh, some World War One. Uh, uh, remembrance stories. We talked about Noel Shavas. We talked about Billy McFadden. We talked about uh, Walter Tall. We talked about Wilfred Owen. And one of the things we didn't talk about was the World War Two stuff. Uh, I was going to talk to him about that, but we didn't have time. Um, but obviously, in my assembly, and I mentioned my assembly that I put together. If you want to get that, just tweet me at Rogers History, and I'll 
I'll fire a copy over to you of the assembly if you want it. But basically, uh, in the assembly, it wasn't just World War One. I, I, I also looked at some World War Two individuals. So I looked at uh, Joseph Franciszek, the RAF, the Czech RAF pilot who came over to Britain and fought in the Battle of Britain. And uh, I think he was the third highest scoring fighter race in, in the Battle of Britain in 1940. I looked at uh, Noor Inayat Khan, who was a agent uh, of the SOE, who was parachuted into occupied France to radio messages about German troop movements uh, from France and was later captured and executed by the Gestapo. She featured in the assembly that I did, uh, along with Violet Zarbo, who also was an SOE agent, uh, similarly captured by the Germans and executed in 1945 at the tender age of 23. So it's not just World War One is the point I'm making. It's also World War Two. It's also any conflict, really, um, to to kind of reflect on and memorialise um, and think about the people who, who didn't come back from it. Um, so that, so in terms of the assembly, as I say, feel free to tweet me at Rogers History if you want a copy of that assembly. Um, and also, I hope today goes well for everybody in terms of what you're doing to commemorate Remembrance Day in school. I know a lot of schools will be doing a minute silence. Many schools will be doing assemblies today and, and so on. Uh, perhaps they will have somebody playing the last post. And talking to the last post... That's how I'm going to close out the show today. So thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you if you're listening back to this as a podcast or you're listening live. Tony, barring, thank you for sharing the live show uh, uh, a few minutes ago. So thank you for that. And thank you to everybody who has tuned in this morning to the morning break on Teachers Talk Radio. Uh